Lord God, we thank you for the chance to hear from you this morning and through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to see and our hearts to listen to what you would have for us this morning. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of a new series, I guess the beginning of a new series called Identity. And Pastor Brad was speaking last week, and the objective of what we're trying to do is we're looking at what makes followers of Jesus different from those people who aren't following Jesus. So if you're joining us here this morning and you've never made the choice to follow Jesus, you couldn't have picked a better Sunday or a better series because this will give you an inside look about what the Christian faith is about and what should look different for those people that have made that decision to follow Jesus. Now, years ago, uh, I heard a story, and I don't know how true it was or not, but I heard that it was not an uncommon practice for high-level executives, bosses, to have potential employees that they were looking at, they were in the interview process and they were looking at hiring them, and I heard that some of them would take this prospective employee golfing. A day out on the golf course, which sounds like a luxury to me, but it was part of the interview process. And so they would, they would take them outside of the boardroom, outside of all the analytical statistics that they had done with that individual, and they wanted to see how they would respond to 18 holes of golf. It was like the golf course was the observation tank. So I'm sure that the executive was asking questions like, well, will he or she throw a club after a bad shot? Will they drink themselves silly in the middle of the afternoon? What sort of sportsmanship, gainsmanship is this, por- is this person going to demonstrate? And I always found that interesting, looking at at something different than just speaking to someone face-to-face to get an overall sense of what their character is like, what their values are like, strategies, attitudes. You can learn a lot about a person by playing a game with them. And when I was younger, my game of choice was Monopoly. That was the game that I played. From the time I was a kid to the time I was in high school to the time I was in college, this was the board that I cared about most. And my piece, my token, which I found out about, I don't know, I think it was maybe six months or a year ago, they are actually voting to discontinue a piece. Did you guys hear this in the news? Yes. This was a great, great worry to me because one of my pieces was one that they were considering discontinuing. I was always the wheelbarrow. This, this was my piece of choice. The car always went fast. It felt like everyone wanted to be the car. So a few years ago, I think, or recently, they had a vote about whether to get rid of the thimble, I think, was one. The wheelbarrow was another one. I think um, they introduced the cat. That was the new token that, that they put in. But I always liked being the wheelbarrow because I thought at the end of the game, I would need a wheelbarrow to haul off all the cash that I was going to have after I had played that game. But the reason why I liked Monopoly so much was because of, of, of how the game is set up and that it forces interaction with your opponents. I'm not talking interaction like give, handing over money when rent is due or where are the dice, give me the dice. I'm talking about the negotiation process. And if you are really to play Monopoly, in my view, for how it's supposed to be played, there's a lot of negotiating. I think it's meant to be played in under two hours, but you can only do that if you obtain monopolies. And so you have to trade. You have to wager. You have to negotiate. You have to bribe and coerce, perhaps, if need be. And one of the things that 
you would figure out is as the game progressed, sometimes only two, three turns around the board, you quickly gained a good sense for who was developing power. Who was the person that all of a sudden was obtaining property and had strategy and had cash? Who was the one that was going to inflict their power on you later on? And I, I, when I played and when I had my best games and my best mental state about me, I would look at this board and I would look at it as if it was my kingdom. This was my square kingdom. And if I had the right amount of properties, the right amount of cash, and the right amount of leverage with my opponents, I could virtually do anything that I wanted to. It was a lot of fun. And that's really how everyone played that game. And the game shows how much power and leverage can make a difference. And there was always a time in the game, we usually played, uh, we usually had four, five, or six players when, when I played this quite often in high school. And there comes that point where you know there's just a matter of time before one of your friends is about to go out. And so their hope, they've got two big hopes. One, land on free parking. We had a house rule, there was always at least $500 cash in free parking. So if someone landed on there, 500 bucks from the bank, and it was a great, great spot to land on. So you wanted free parking or you wanted to go to jail. Those were your two options when you're, run, when you're basically getting close to dying. But inevitably, if someone's sitting in jail and they don't want to roll doubles and they're not paying the fee and all they want is double fives to get to free parking, they realize, I got to go around the board. And I got to go buy the New York properties. I got to go buy the Illinois properties. And there's hotels there. And I've got limited options. And this is what I loved about the game, because I would hear these conversations as, as the losing player would all of a sudden roll the wrong number. And he'd hear his friends say, that's $1,200. And what happened there was if the losing player was smart enough, strategic enough, he had already prepared what he was about to say. And he would say something like this, well, I'll give you Indiana, my railroads, and $400. And a lot of times that worked. He'd planned ahead. He realized that if he had to pay cash, he would mortgage everything, and there's no way he'd be able to get back into it. But sometimes that master of the board, the one who had leveraged well, the one who was in control, would not accept that. He'd say something like, no, I want Indiana, your purple monopoly, and $200. To which the other opponent would say, no way. That's ridiculous. I'm not giving you those. And then my favorite part of this interaction is when the master of the board would say, well, you're not really in a position to negotiate right now, are you? (laughs) Well, what do you want? I want my money. Mortgage everything you've got and pay me my money. And what else could could the loser do in that point? But try to maybe sell off his assets to someone else, which is a great opportunity for someone to jump in at a bargain. But the person in control, the master of the board, dictated what would happen then. Now, you and I know what power feels like. I'm guessing everyone here has played the game of Monopoly. It is a little bit of a microcosm for the economic world that we live in. It's taking risks. It's taking chances. It's also exerting control and influence and trying to bring about the mission of this game, which is to win and to have others to lose. But we know what power feels like outside of this game. We know what it feels like in our life. All of us have had chances to exert our influence and power on other people. And all of us have had moments in our life where we literally feel powerless. It's part of life. 
It's how we relate to each other. And power can be used for great things, and power can be used to accomplish terrible things in and through people. Now, as we think about the Christian faith, there's no question that Jesus had power. But the way that he chose to use his power and the way that he chose to empower others surprised virtually everyone that he ran into. It's like he had all the winning pieces in Monopoly, and yet he chose to play in a way that no one had ever seen before. Which might be a good comparison because Jesus' mission on earth kept confusing his closest friends. And the story that I want to look at this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. It's a familiar passage to many of us. And as you turn there, I want to set the scene a little bit. At this time in the story, Jesus is telling his disciples, his closest followers, his closest friends, that his time is coming. His end of life is coming. And so he's told them multiple times now that he will be killed. And so this story begins with this. He's telling them, he wants to give them this understanding that this is how things are going to be. But the disciples have this difficult mind frame. They, they can't put these two things together. They don't know what to make of it. They're thinking about how you and I would play Monopoly. And so they hear this and they just can't think to themselves that this would happen because Jesus is the king. So there's got to come this point when he reaches his throne, he climbs up, he sits there on his throne, and he starts ordering people around because that's what kings do. They have power, they have influence, they're able to coerce and dictate things as they would like to. And yet Jesus talks about something completely different, and he flips their world upside down. So in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, we read that Jesus and his followers are going to Jerusalem. And so they're on their way to Jerusalem, and yet Jesus pauses, and he kind of takes his 12 disciples aside, and he gives them a private message. And here's this message. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, and Jesus is speaking here about himself, he will be betrayed and delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day, he will be raised to life. I've been on lots of road trips. I've never had a friend pull me aside and kind of prepare me for something like this on the way. But this is what Jesus says. They're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus and 12 of his friends, by the way, guys, just so you know, we're going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, this is what's going to happen. Interesting. But what's even more interesting is that after these words, Jesus is approached by a woman. And it's always times in the gospel that I wonder, well, what's the time sequence? Matthew's going to use a transition word. He uses the word then. And I think there's a clear link between what he just says to his disciples and what he's asked by this woman. But it's hard to know exactly how close in time these two things happen. But there's a woman who approaches Jesus, and she's a mother of James and John, known as the sons of Zebedee. So she asks Jesus for a favor. And based on how Matthew's chosen to arrange his gospel, it seems like he wants us to notice this strange contrast between what Jesus has just told his disciples and what this woman asks him. In verse 21 of Matthew 20, she asks Jesus, excuse me, verse 20, she asks Jesus for a favor. She kneels down and asks him for a favor. And Jesus says, well, what is it that you want? And she says, 
Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and on the left in your kingdom. Now, sitting to the right of a king or someone of some sort of authority, that was seen as supreme honor. You've got the king, you've got the the throne to the right and to the left, and really either one is pretty good company. I mean, you've got prestige, status, authority, riches. You're the right-hand man. That's where that expression seems to come from. There's a place of honor there. The left, not quite as great, good as the right, but you're still in pretty good company. Now, if I were Jesus, I probably would have asked her which son should sit on which side, just to see, you know, what sort of response we get and what James and John would say. But their bigger concern was finding out what Jesus would say about this request. Now, we can't know for sure if the mother did this on her own volition or if James and John kind of spurred her ahead and asked her to ask Jesus. Based on how Jesus responds, he doesn't respond just to the woman. He responds to them and seems to single out the brothers. So it seems like there's something else going on. But the other interesting part of this story is we've got pretty good evidence that there's a relationship between Jesus and this woman. In another gospel, she's named as the sister of Mary, which would make this woman the aunt of Jesus. And James and John, cousins of Jesus. So we've got a family dynamic as well. It's a bit of a favor. Hey, Jesus, remember I used to make all those, that great food at you know, the holiday time. Grant me this favor. My two sons, one on either side of you. So Jesus responds in verse 22, and he's both direct and honest. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And then he says to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, the reason why Jesus says the woman and her sons don't know what they're talking about is because they're assuming that the places next to Jesus are places of luxury. Oh, Jesus is going to be king? I want to sit on his right and his left. And Jesus now is saying, you really don't know what you're asking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And when you think about how he just told his disciples that he was going to be killed, beaten, humiliated, and killed, There's this disconnect between these two different ideas of what his throne is going to look like. Presumably, James and John and the other disciples, based on some other stories, they think that this is going to be an incredible seat of authority. They're thinking about what power and authority looks like in their eyes. The Gentile leaders are about to be referenced here. They look at the Roman leaders, King Herod, governors, officials, some of the religious religious authorities. They have power. They have prestige. They have benefits. And they think maybe this is in store for us as well if we can sit next to Jesus. So even though Jesus keeps telling them that he's going to be sentenced to death, they're under the impression that he will assume power that looks just like everyone else uses power and that this could potentially provide them with some great benefits. So Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? And they say, yes, we can. Now, maybe they thought it was their first interview question. Maybe they're preparing for their next political campaign. And yes, we can is a great rally cry. But it seems like they're quick to answer. We can do that. We can drink the same cup, meaning we can do the same thing that you can, Jesus. We can behave. We can respond. We can act. We can have the same mission that you can as well. And Jesus says in verse 23, basically, you're correct. You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left are not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared for by my Father. So Jesus says to them both yes and no. Yes, you are going to drink the same cup that I will. And we know from Christian history that James and John, as well as many of the other disciples, they suffered horrendous persecution and hardship just like Jesus did. Many of them were, were killed and martyred because of their faith. But to their question of having this honorable position on either side of them, he says, no, that's not for me to decide. That's a decision that's been empowered to my father, and that's for him to make. Now, by this time in the story, the other 10 are not all that happy. Well, we don't know if they've been eavesdropping. We don't know if they were part of this conversation with the mother and her two sons, but the text tells us that they are indignant. Verse 24, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the brothers. Now, I've almost never used the word indignant, but all the other words that indignant means, I use those all the time. Outraged, irate, annoyed, furious. And all of these feelings are directed at James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So why are the ten indignant? Why are they annoyed and furious? Well, it probably depends on what you think about the disciples. They could be angry at the brothers because they could think that that question that they asked was completely insensitive. Come on, James and John, how could you? Jesus just told you he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed, and you're asking him to sit on either side of him. Like, how disrespectful and rude. Or they could be angry because they weren't clever enough to ask the question before the brothers were. Now, based on what we know about the disciples, it's probably the second option. It's probably more likely. They're probably jealous that the brothers beat them to the punch. They, they missed out on their chance to ask for a seat of prominence next to Jesus, which makes what Jesus says even more surprising. Because the picture that we get of this scene is Jesus speaking to James and John. And James and John, I would think, would have kind of a hopeful expression on their face. Well, we asked the question. Um, we got our mom to break the ice for us. Uh, maybe Jesus is going to say, sure, you can sit, and let's cast lots to see which one of you is on my right-hand side. While the other ten have this look of disgust on their face, like someone just punched them in the stomach and surprised them, and they thought, man, I can't believe this. Those brothers beat me to that question. They got their mother to talk to him, and there's that family relationship that I don't have. Why didn't I think of that first? And it's within this moment of emotion and anger and hopefulness that Jesus gives one of the most countercultural, upside down, I can't believe he just said it, statements. Listen carefully to the next few verses here. Jesus says to them in verse 25. He calls them all together. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Now, so that we're clear, Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So he's talking about the non-Jewish rulers in the area, the Roman leaders. And he's telling his disciples, you know about these people, don't you? You know how they use their power, you know how they play the game. You know how they exert their influence on other people. And then Jesus says these four powerful words. 
He says, not so with you. You know what they do, James and John and the other of you. You know that's not how you are to behave. Instead, verse 26, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus takes the request that James and John give him, and he realizes that what they're really asking for is significance. They're looking for status. They're looking for position. They're looking for greatness. And then Jesus redefines it. If his followers want to follow the kingdom and be leaders in this kingdom that Jesus is talking about and that he himself is leading, then the crown that they'll be wearing will look much different than the crown that the Roman leaders wear. If they want to play a significant role in the kingdom that Jesus is leading, then their leadership, their influence, their behavior, their conduct will have to look the same way that Jesus does. Now, all kings wear crowns. But instead of grabbing a crown of gold and putting it on himself, Jesus chose to wear a crown of thorns. He says that he didn't come to earth to be served, but to serve. And if anyone truly wishes to follow him, if anyone wishes to be so loyal and so trustworthy and so capable to actually sit next to him as ruling entities in this kingdom, then their ambition must be the same as his, not to be served, but to serve. The point that Jesus makes to his followers is this. His most dedicated followers are his most dedicated servants. His most dedicated followers are his most dedicated servants. As Pastor Brad and I were praying and planning through this series several weeks ago, we asked ourselves the question, what makes Christians unique? I mean, if we look at the thoughts, the attitudes, the behaviors, the ambitions, of people who say, I'm following Christ, I'm earnestly following Christ, well, what looks different? What would we find? And our response has led to the development of this series, seven unique characteristics that define people who follow Jesus. And while the list could go much longer than seven weeks, there aren't too many indicators that scream louder than service. Christians serve. Christians serve. Why? Because a Christian is a follower of Christ. A Christ follower follows the teaching and example of Christ. And since Christ's entire time on earth was spent serving, and because Christ's entire philosophy of life was to serve, it only makes sense that his followers would also be people who serve. His most dedicated followers are his most dedicated servants. So if you have any desire to follow Jesus, you have to realize that service is not just important, it's part of your identity. It's part of who you are. It colors everything that you do. In fact, I find it hard to imagine how someone could choose not to serve and still identify him or herself as a follower of Jesus. By definition, it actually sounds incompatible. How could that actually go together? To say this a little bit differently... If you've never chosen to follow Jesus, this might give you a good reason not to, because it's an understanding that the two go together. 
If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to obey Jesus, you will be asked by Jesus to serve like Jesus. It's better that you know this now instead of finding out later and thinking, well, I never wanted to make that sort of life commitment and that sort of change. I'm actually quite pleased with just living and serving myself. Following Jesus in service are intertwined like cords of a rope. They just go together. It's the same pathway, which is why his most dedicated followers are his most dedicated servants. Now, my guess is that some of you are getting ready to tune out here because you feel the time to serve sales pitch coming up and you're ready for it. And you're going to go check the NFL scores on your phone instead of listening to the sales pitch. And I'm not going to give it to you. I want to tell you what often happens when this story is used. Matthew chapter 20. In my opinion, this is the go-to story about service. This is the great strong link in the Bible that says, Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. And so his followers ought then to do this as well. But remember, it's also an effective story about authority, power, leadership. Remember, it starts out with Jesus pointing to the tyranny of the Roman leaders and saying, don't live this way. That's not how you are to behave. And I think what many of us have done is we've taken the overbearing leadership and the call for humble service, and we've turned this into a watered-down message in the middle that Jesus never intended to teach. We see the, the leadership and the tyranny and the oppressive type of power that can be used And then we've seen this radical call for humble service and we've combined it together and it's made us scared. And I think what's happened is that it's turned many of us into people who are scared to lead and who are also scared to serve. Many of us are just flat out scared to lead, but we're also scared to serve. Now, some of you are scared to lead because you've heard this warning about overbearing leadership and you've chosen to avoid it altogether. Instead of seeing authority, power, opportunity as a neutral resource, you decide, you know what? Instead of leveraging that for good, instead of making sure that I don't use it to to take uh, advantage of others or to serve my own interests, I'm just going to avoid it as much as possible and then I'll just play it safe. There's a warning out there about leadership and, and how to use your power and authority So I'm just going to turn my back to it and make sure I never cross that line. I can't tell you how many times I've heard from people here in this church, I can't lead or I don't want to lead. Now, this is my opinion here. I'm not an expert on leadership by any means, but there's a lot of unread books on my bookshelf that I can pass on to you about leadership. (laughs) You may not think of yourself as a leader, but don't kid yourself. You lead. You have influence. We all have influence. Every every parent has leadership influence on their child. If you're a parent and you don't think that you do, I strongly question your philosophy of parenting. Your child looks up to you. You teach your child. You are leading your child whether you recognize it or not. Every employee has some sort of leadership opportunity, some sort of influence, some sort of impact, not only on the people that they work with, but on your boss as well. That's influence. You better recognize that you are rubbing elbows with people and you're making a difference in their lives. Every student 
has an impact on the people in their classroom. The question is not whether or not you're leading. The question is how you are leading. Because you are leading. And if your tendency is to run away from it as much as possible, what does this say to the people who are already following you? Because you're having an impact on them. What sort of positive impact could you have on them if you fully embraced your role and used your influence in God-honoring ways? Jesus does not condemn leadership, power, or influence in this story. He simply warns against the way that the Gentiles do it. He says, you know what their authority looks like. You know the coercion. You know the manipulation. You know the power that they use. Not so with you. That's not the road for you. So you may have your reasons for being scared to lead, but they really can't be founded on this story. And some of you are scared of serving because there are risks associated with serving. And one of the biggest ones is the threat of getting walked over. And to be fair, this is a legitimate fear. I mean, if you think about the decision to follow Jesus and the decision then to serve, if you look at the life of Jesus, he suffered quite a bit. It got him into quite a bit of trouble. There's a cost to following Jesus. There's a cost to serving. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ and for others. And so I think there are some of us who hear the word servant and we wonder how long it will be before we simply get bossed around. We think of the tasks that no one else wants to do and no right-minded person would possibly do. We see service as a recipe for being taken advantage of. But becoming someone's servant does not always mean getting walked over or being meek. And in most cases, it should not mean that. Serving another is treating them with the same love that Jesus has for us. It does not mean that we do what they want, but it does mean that we do what's best for them. Which is why Jesus actually embodies the heart of a servant. When he looks his friend Peter in the eyes and he rebukes him to his face. Not because it's what Peter wanted, but because it was best for him. That was not meek. That was not getting walked over. But it was serving his friend the way that God would want him served. Serving isn't unconditional compliance. Serving is loving others enough to get involved. Now, I may have touched on a few nerves. Many of us are scared of leading. Many of us are scared of serving. I've had my moments of being scared of each one, and I still do. But I'm more scared that we as a church are choosing to let our fear keep us from fulfilling what God has called us to do. The most dedicated followers are the most dedicated servants. And this is true for all followers, whether you're scared of leading or scared of serving. So what should we do about it? Well, the classic application for a sermon like this is simply do more, serve more. Sign up for something right now. Join this service group, be part of this team, get out on the pavement and do stuff. But I think Jesus' teaching goes beyond this. Because as Pastor Brad was teaching last week, our identity is not rooted in doing, it's rooted in being. Followers of Jesus do not earn the foundational characteristics that define our identity. We receive them. We embrace them. And if they're truly valuable to us, 
we own them, we celebrate them, and we begin to use them. The greatest temptation in reading this story is to think that Jesus gives us instructions for how to become great. If we think of this story in this way, we will believe that serving more will make us greater. Or to say it in simpler terms, we can be tempted to think that greater service equals greater greatness. It's easy to read this and say, Jesus says, if you want to become great, then become a servant. And so it's very easy to think, oh, well, that's the equation. Greater service equals greater greatness. But listen to how Dallas Willard, who's an excellent author, listens to how he challenges this idea. He says, we misunderstand this passage if we read it merely as instructions on how to become great. It is, rather, a statement of how those who are great are to behave. Jesus is talking about how those who are great are to behave. Willard suggests that greatness is not achieved once we reached a particular quantity of service. Service is simply an act of obedience that great followers express. It's what his closest followers do, his most dedicated ones. My biggest concern for our church is not that some of you aren't serving, it's that some of you don't show any desire to serve. And if you don't have a desire to serve, it's a clear sign to me that you're suffering from identity amnesia. You don't really know who you are as a follower of Jesus. Because if you did, your desire to follow Jesus would naturally lead you to have a desire to serve. My second concern is that some of you are serving for the wrong reasons. Your motivation to serve is to become great. And so you have made service your chief spiritual ambition. This, once again, is a clear sign of identity amnesia. And if you continue on this path of thinking more service, more greatness, do more in order to make myself feel better and for God and for others to think more highly of me, you will be exhausted and disappointed quite soon. And even more troubling, you will be completely lost about who you are. Are. So instead of giving you some sort of edict on serving with some sort of quantity attached to it, I want to leave you with just one question. A question that can be read in two different ways depending on which state of mind you are in. Why are you serving? Or said another way, why are you not serving? Why aren't you serving? Why are you serving? What's motivating you? What's fueling your apathy? What's driving your ambition? Why are you not serving? Why are you serving? Because church, we have a choice. We can be people who lead like the Gentile rulers. We can be people from, who hide from leadership opportunities. We can be people who serve in order to make names for ourselves. We can be people who ignore all the needs that cry out for a servant to take action. Or we can be a people who look at these options and say, not so with us. Why would we say that? Because those options don't represent our leader. And they don't represent his followers. And they don't represent you. Let's pray.
Lord, your words on power, leadership, service, they're lasting. They're powerful. And we want to thank you for the truth of your scripture. Lord, for those who have chosen to follow Jesus, we want to serve. I pray that you would increase our desire to serve. I pray that it would fill us with the hope and the new life that you promised to your followers, that our joy will be full. Lord, for those who are searching, for those who are confused about who you are, for what it means to be a follower of yours, please speak. Reaffirm what their identity is, what their identity can be in you. And Lord, as a church, I pray for an overwhelming heart to be servants, to serve one another, to serve those in our family, in our workplaces, and in our community. Lord, may we be known as people who think of others before ourselves. Amen.